It's amazing how tempting it is to rush past silence and to break silence. I feel I need to explain why we go for silence. Almost a need to diffuse the fact that we're in silence. Definitely an urgency to end the silence. I think that's because many of us have had in our lives some traumatic experiences of life defined by silence. Although it's very, very exceptional for many of us to live with silence and to handle silence well, there are some people here today, our deaf community today is Deaf Sunday, where silence is the norm. I imagine that they would preach a sermon about silence much better than I ever could. I've had, I've had traumatic experiences in silence. I think back to the days at school when we used to write exams in silence, the exam hall, the exam classroom. Silent moments of sweating, you know, my mind scurrying trying to find the answer. I remember there's a, there's a prayer in the Bible. I used to reiterate this over and over again during exams. There's that prayer that says, Lord, show me things I've never seen before. <laughs> and in the silence, I was grinding that prayer, Lord, please. But those are traumatic times. Silence, exams. Remember, and I, I, I have told this story before, but I remember when my kids were still lighties. And Shay, my eldest, was about four years old. And I was lying on my bed, I don't know, reading or something. And she was in the bottom of the bed just out of sight. And she was playing. And she had a little little uh, keyring harmonica. Who makes a keyring harmonica? And there she was. What parent allows the four-year-old kid to play with a keyring harmonica? Anyway, she's on the bottom of the bed, out of sight, and then went silent. And as a dad and every parent knows, when there's silence around kids, there could be something going wrong. So in a after about 30 seconds of silence, I got up and I looked over the bed. And there my daughter was lying on her back and she had swallowed the keyring harmonica. And I could literally see it lodged at the back of her throat. And this little four-year-old didn't know what to do. She was flailing. If I had gone to the kitchen to make a cup of coffee, it would have been tickets. Today she's 23 years old and healthy. I, I wasn't a... American, I just stuck my, my hand straight down her throat and I yanked it out. Um, I, I don't know what I did to her throat, but I do know she sings beautifully nowadays. She's up here front. I think I'm too close. Thank you. Thank you. But it was a frightening silence, hey? Very disturbing silence in retrospect. That, that silence was full of pain and anguish that my kid was going through. Uh, when I was naughty growing up, and I'd done something wrong again. I don't know what it was. I remember my mom said to me, the standard frightening statement was, Rich, you go wait in your room for me. Go to the room and wait for me. I'm coming now. And I would, I'd go to my room, and there was silence as my mom went and grabbed the belt because I knew what was coming. And it was a truly terrifying 
intimidating silence that was in my room. And so it was through these kinds of experiences through the years that I've learned a few things about silence, that silence can be incredibly awkward. It can be very scary and intimidating. Silence can leave you with a lot of daunting questions. Silence can be utterly unnerving. But silence isn't always like that. Silence isn't always traumatic, and I think we all know that. I don't know if you remember those first few days of lockdown a couple of years ago. Uh, this pandemic had arrived. Who knew what a pandemic was at that stage? Hey, we were going to have like two weeks of lockdown or something, like a free holiday. I can't remember what the thing was. We were all excited about that. And so the, the roads shut down, and the flights stopped, and the generators and the machines in the world stopped, and suddenly this, this incredibly pristine silence kind of descended on, on Westville on our, into our world. And, and at least for the first few days, I don't know if you like me, I utterly loved it. I loved that silence. There's something therapeutic about that silence for the soul. There's a peacefulness that comes with it. That's why many people will go to the bush or will go to the berg because part of the beauty of that is not just what you can see but the silence that fills our mind and our heart and it's just invigorating, man. It's beautiful. A couple of decades ago, I went on an on a eight-day silent retreat. I know John's been on one. Maybe some other people have done that kind of thing. Eight days, typically, you sit for eight days and you've got a few exercises that you're working through, reading plan, that kind of stuff. For one hour a day, you go and pack your thoughts and whatever you are with your spiritual advisor. But for eight days, effectively, you're silent in your meals. All the, you go to bed in silence, wake up in silence. And, and it was quite different. I found that the, at that time that it was, it was very restorative. Many times it was restful. I found it instructive. At times, utterly boring, <laughs> to be honest. But, but, but silence isn't always just one flavor. It's not always traumatic. It can be something truly incredible as well. And silence is a constant theme throughout the Bible. But there's one very well-known period of silence that kind of stands out above the crowd of other silences in the Bible, and it's that period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you look up on the screen with that little graph, you'll see that the, the orange zone kind of depicts what happens in the Old Testament, um, and it ends with Malachi. It says Malachi there at 400 BC. That's the end of the Old Testament, last book of the Old Testament, um, and then there's 400-year period before you see the green period start, which is the New Testament. 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you had your Bible with you, I'll take you to those, that passage between, or that page between the Old Testament and New Testament. You'll see it's a, it's a blank page. It's a, it's, it's, it's a period of silence. They call it the 400 years of silence. To be honest, the Old Testament ends on a very scary note, kind of like what my mom said, go to the room and wait for me. It, it, it ends on an ominous note. Listen to what the last verse of the Old Testament says. It says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah, which is basically a prophecy about John the Baptist. 
I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to the parents, which is lovely. But then there's the last line of the Old Testament, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And that's the final soundbite of the Old Testament. And then we step into 400 years of silence. Yo, what a note to end on. 400 years of silence. When I say 400 years of silence, basically what I'm saying is that there was no Old Testament prophet. There was no prophet that stepped in to kind of say, this is what God is saying now. That's how the Old Testament was navigated. God spoke through the prophets, as, as Hebrew says. But no more prophets appeared for 400 years of, of time. It was prophetic dead air. God didn't spoke. Now, in radio terms, dead air is like the biggest thing you've got to watch out for. When you're listening to East Coast and, and, and suddenly there's dead air, nothing's happening. No music, no, no one's speaking. The first thing the person says when they come back on is, sorry, or they, they, they try to cover the fact that there was dead air because it's, it's so awkward. And this was prophetic dead air for 400 years. Can you imagine that? God's silent for 400 years. He has the thing. Many of us, when we experience the silence of God, we go from silence to absence. And, and we make it a simile. The silence of God is very probably the fact that God is absent. Today we want to process a little bit. What do we do with those experiences of silence that happened between me and God in our faith? What do we do with that? I mean, I know how to act when God speaks to me. It's an absolute relief. I'm like, yes, I know which way to go. I know what to do. I know how to handle my life. I know how to repent when God points out something. And, and I know the, the, the process of turning from that sin and saying, God, forgive me, and so on. I know where to, where to turn when God says, this is the way, walk in it. But silence is one of the most traumatic experiences of a faith journey. What do I do with God's silence? If you've never come to that point of asking that question, I'd be surprised. I wonder if I'd ask how many of you today have or are battling with the silence of God. I suspect it to be quite an eye-opening presence in our service. My guess is every believer has at times grappled with that. It's been something that's been churning in our heart. I ask for God. I ask God for a door to be open because I'm desperate right now and there is silence. I ask God for a life partner. Because I long for that companionship and there's silence. I ask God for about someone I'm deeply concerned about. They're ill, Lord. Please bring relief. I ask God for some direction. Why the silence, God? What do I do with that silence from you in those moments? I want to plant a thought very firmly in front of us today. That silence isn't about absence. Silence isn't about emptiness. So there's a, a sermon in the 400 years of silence between the Old Testament. Very, very important sermon that can be found in those 400 years of silence. 
The fact is, this, in the silence, everything changed during those 400 years. The world shifted. It pivoted massively. So just to give you a picture of it, the politic, politics changed. It went from the Persian, the known world, it went from the Persian to the Greek to the Roman Empire during that period of time, 400 years. Three different empires dominated the world and changed the world. Because of those different empires and what they brought to the scene, a common language was birthed. In the known world, Greek became known to many, many, many of the citizens. Greek was a language that was accessible and understood by many people. It was incidentally also an excellent language to convey the truths of the gospel. Common culture change, so things like the ability to reason and process things more logically and with, with greater understanding became accessible even to commoners and not just to the scholarly or the wealthy few. That reasoning ability, because the culture changed, became accessible to much of the world. The Roman road system, we've all learned about that at school, spread across the known world. It was a beautiful system for communication. People could travel very, very quickly, more so than ever before. And so, again, a system was set up for the gospel to be spread much more effectively than it ever could have been before. The Jewish religion changed, and so the meeting places of worship changed from a temple type of worship to a synagogue type of worship. And so the system of local gatherings of the Jewish faith certainly played a part in the growth and establishment of the early church. The sum total of all of this and much else that had changed was that by the time John the Baptist arrived, announcing Jesus' arrival, from the time of the start of the New Testament... Never had history been so primed to effectively send the message of our Savior out to the world. It had the system, the road system. It had a culture. It had a language. It was perfectly primed for the gospel to spread and the good news to spread. So despite the silence of God's voice in those 400 years, his fingerprints were everywhere all over history. The silence wasn't an absence of God. You know, if we are ever to handle the silence of God well, that truth is something that we'll, we'll need to allow to settle in the depths of our soul and into our, our theology and our, our dark and lonely moments of life. Silence does not equal absence. Silence does not equal emptiness. Silent sermons are everywhere for those that have ears to hear. Listen to Psalm 19. Positions this truth about silent sermons brilliantly. It says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. And day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night... They reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. And yet their voice goes out into all the earth, the words to the ends of the world. There's an incredible sermon being preached in the silence of the heavens day after day for those that have eyes to see or ears to hear. It's a silent sermon, but it is a powerful sermon nevertheless. In the New Testament, 
massive hole. Incredible sermons have been preached in silence. If you think of that moment of Jesus bending over to write in the sand, where, where a bunch of people had accused this lady that had been caught in, the, in adultery and they were about to stone her and um, they were about to you know, get rid of her and, and, and turned to Jesus and said, what should we do with the sinner? And his response was, let him without sin cast the first stone. And then he disarmingly bends down and he starts to draw in the sand. And in that silence, it absolutely diffuses the moment. The powerful sermon that happens in, the, in, in, the, in, that, in that silence causes these men, these accusers, to walk away disarmed. Silent sermons are everywhere. The hug of the dad on his prodigal son. And so his son has been away for so long in, in deep, deep trouble and finally makes that long church journey back to his dad and his dad throws a party. And he, but I bet you, I have no doubt that at some point words of welcoming back ran out and he basically hugged his son and drew him into his chest and it was silent. And there was a silent sermon of affection and acceptance and forgiveness that that dad preached to his son in that moment without any words in the picture. Beautiful, silent sermon. If you remember those two occasions where one a lady was pouring ointment on Jesus' feet, another one, I don't know if it was the same one, was crying onto Jesus' feet because of her repentance. And this was in a room full of other blokes, scholars and respectable people and and yeah, this broken lady comes and she, she worships and adores Jesus. And I bet you a silence descended on that, on that room of everyone going like, whoa, how awkward is this? But in the silence, a powerful sermon is being preached again of Jesus accepting her love and her adoration and her being able to express that connection with Jesus. Every day that Lazarus lived, if you remember, Lazarus was the one that Jesus raised from the dead. Every, every day that he lived was a silent sermon. He didn't need to say anything. But the fact that he was living there was a silent sermon testifying to the power of God to those people around him and knew him. Silent sermons. Silent sermons are preached every day when you or I refuse to take a bribe in this corrupt place. Silent sermons are preached when we choose not to go overboard at a party, when we choose to love and protect our neighbor, whoever they are. Silent sermons are critical if you're ever going to choose to use your words. Silence is not absence. In fact, I've come to believe that silence always always has, has some sort of flavor to it. That in fact, silence is very rarely empty. And I wonder what flavor of silence God is calling you to, if that's the space that you're in at the moment. What flavor of silence is God calling you to? So for the rest of the sermon, I'm going to introduce to you four different flavors of silence that we encounter in the Bible. I'll introduce it to you. I kind of say, this is the flavor. Um, I'll give you a few moments of silence to, to taste it and explore it. I'll, I'll say a bit, little bit about it. I'll give you a few moments of silence just to taste it and explore it, see if it's something that resonates with your life and with your faith journey at the moment. 
going to take a little while to go through these four flavors, so I'm going to ask you just to sit back, relax, into the silence. All right. And see if one of these four tastes of silence speaks to your life at the moment. So firstly, the first taste of silence is that a silence that comes that is appropriate in tough times. A silence that comes to us and that is appropriate in tough times because in that silence we are finding the humility and the ability to submit to the fact that we're not always in control. couple of verses to explain this. So, so Psalm 4 verse 4 says this. It says, when you are disturbed, when we are in trouble, when we are, when we are you know, disturbed, do not sin. Then it says, ponder it on your beds and be silent. When things are tough, there's a safety and there's a wisdom about going into silence. Isaiah 52 verse 7, this is a prophetic word about Jesus as he faced his persecution, but I think it's also a prophecy for us about when we face persecution, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. There's a choice of silence not to defend ourselves. And we'll only make that choice when God is in the picture. Otherwise, we will be desperate always to defend ourselves. Psalm 62, verse 1 and, and 2. Again, silence in tough, tough times. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. So there's this, this waiting in expectation. I know I'm in tough times. I, I know I'm in trouble, Lord. I don't actually see the light at the end of the tunnel. Things are dark. But in these moments, my, my, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. For he'll bring salvation. And Isaiah 30 verse 15 says, In returning and rest... You shall be saved in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength in your tough times. Sometimes the only strength you'll find is through the silence that comes to us, that we need to adopt, that we need to stay to. There's a strength in silence that can be found in silence. So that's the first flavor, silence that feeds us, that is right, that is good in tough times. Lord, help us to, help us to prevent, befriend that type of silence when you call us to it. Second flavor of silence that we encounter in Scripture is silence as a pursuit of wisdom. I'm befuddled, I'm confused, I'm a bit overwhelmed, so I go into silence to find wisdom, to find a way forward. As I, as I choose silence to help me learn about myself, about the circumstances, whatever. A couple of verses again. 
Silence is a pursuit of wisdom. Job 13 verse 5. If you would only keep silent, that would be your wisdom. Stop the arguing. Stop the reasoning. Stop the fighting. Stop the whatever it is, just for a few moments. If you could be silent, that would be your wisdom. James 1 verse 19. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. All right, we slow ourselves down almost into silence so that we can take control of the impulsive anger that we have or the impulsive desires that we have. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, slow it down, quieten down. There's wisdom in handling life that way. Job 6 verse 24, teach me and I will be silent. There is something beneficial about this scenario where someone teaches and everyone is silent in order to listen. Because we can learn sometimes when we're silent. Teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I've gone wrong. It's an attempt to learn. Oh God, teach me. And I'll be silent as I get taught by you. Proverbs 11 verse 12. Whoever belittles another lacks sense. Whoever belittles another lacks sense. But an intelligent person remains silent. How lack it is at times to twist the knife of gossip. Did you hear about that person? An intelligent person belittles another, that person lacks sense, but, sorry, uh, uh, whoever, <laughs> you, you know what it says, but an intelligent person remains silent. I'm not going to say that thing. There's wisdom and character that can be found in silence. So there's a silence in tough times that refines our heart and our mind, that helps us to learn and that's a silence that at times we need to step in. Help us to be silent long enough to be teachable, God. The third flavor of silence that Scripture speaks about is a faithful silence. It's about a very real, intimate connection with God. Times with God can be immersed in silence, but are massively beautiful, significant, and real. And that's this kind of silence. So 1 Samuel 1 verse 13 speaks about a lady named Hannah. Hannah was praying silently. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. And it almost struck the writer. I need to record this moment because I suppose a lot of praying, praying happened out loud. Hannah just prayed quietly and her lips were moving. And it was this beautiful moment between Hannah and God that this person picked up on. 1 Kings 19 verse 12, after the earthquake, maybe we can say after the pandemic, there was a fire, but after the riots, you know, after the fire, I don't know, after these hectic, hectic moments in all of it, you know, we looked around for God and after the fire, small, still and 
a voice still and small, and God is speaking in the wake of these things. God speaks quietly in the silence that comes from these moments where we've been hammered and we find ourselves on our knees. God speaks. Psalm 39 verse 9, I am silent. And do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Okay, again, an, an important moment between me and God. I am silent. Because I remember you who have done it. It takes a moment of silence sometimes for us to actually get into gratitude, eh? Like unless we're silent, we'll just carry on living life day to day, you know. But when we pause and we remain silent, we say, let's just count our blessings. And in our silence, we say, thank you, God, that I'm healthy right now. Thank you, Lord, for a wife that loves me and kids that love me and a house over my head, food on my table. Thank you, Lord, for friends, for church. And as we pause and we go into those silent moments of reflection and gratefulness, we remember that God, God works in our lives. God fingers, God's fingerprints are, in fact, all over our lives. Habakkuk 2 verse 20 says, <laughs> incredible verse, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. There's a worshipful silence that is appropriate. The Lord is in his temple. As we consider our country and the corruption and the difficulties and the challenges, as we consider the next year that we're going to face based on this salary that I do or don't have, let's remember in silence the Lord is in his temple. God is still God. Let all the earth keep silent before him. May our arguments, may our frustrations, may our, all of that have a moment of silence that is ad added to them because we remember actually God is still in his temple. Psalm 130 verse one, 131 verse 2, but I have, another lovely one, I have calmed and quieted my soul. How beautiful is that little picture? I've calmed and quieted my soul. Here's how the person does that. Like a weaned child with his mother. In other words, we calm our souls and we quiet our souls before God because we're in that zone of just accepting his love like a weaned child with its mother. Just accepting God's love, allowing God's to, love to encompass us. And so there is a silence again that is full of intimacy with God. It's not busy, it's not raucous, but it's profoundly with God. Fills our faith. In the silence, Lord, may we find you. May we discover again your greatness, your closeness and your love. May we befriend the silence that's so full of your presence. And then the last flavor of silence, okay? Last flavor of silence, biblical silence. A silence that happens before everything changes. 
Silence that happens before everything changes. So Zephaniah 1 verse 7 says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And so there's a silence that is full of expectation because God is about to move. All right, and there's a silence of expectation and it's hopeful and it's, Lord, when are you going to move? I know you're going to move, but there's a silence about it because we're trusting God to take us somewhere. Something's going to change massively. Revelation chapter 8 verse 1 speaks similarly. It says, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, and these are seven seals that change all of history. It's a, from this point on, the seventh seal, everything changes. The whole ball game, it's you know, game over in terms of history. Everything changes. But when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, <coughs> there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. We don't envisage heaven as a silent place. It, surely it isn't. I mean, there's these angels, these choirs of angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, incessantly through the ages, just singing and, and worshiping and that kind of stuff. But in this instance, heaven descends into silence. Why? Because everything is about a change. There's appropriate silence that is full of expectation, full of hope. Now those years of silence between the testaments, those 400 years, we call it the intertestamental period, those 400 years of silence were this type of silence. Silence before everything changes. In a sense, that was the first and the most intense and the most frustrating but the most critically important Advent season that this world has ever seen. It was a time of preparation for the birth of Jesus. That's what those 400 years of silence were about. The next time that we hear from God, it's through the cry of a little baby as we'll hear on Christmas Day. And when we pressed this, when Richard pressed this button so dramatically at the start of the service, it was a moment to signify that we are now looking forward. We have now stepped into the Advent season. We are now looking forward to the greatest event of history. Advent, like those 400 years, is more about preparation than anything else. Preparation for Christmas Day. Preparation for celebrating the arrival of Jesus. That's the season we stepped into this morning. If we arrive on Christmas Day underprepared, not ready to celebrate the significance of Jesus' birth, it's because we have not done this season any justice. And so to help us to get on the right trajectory for the season... We're going to close the service now by, surprise, surprise, going into a little bit of silence again. A silence that is full of expectation. And in that silence, I would love for you to simply answer this one question. How do I prepare well for this coming Christmas? Christmas.